Well, good morning, everyone. Let me pray for us as we have a look at God's Word today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you'll help us to understand uh, what this passage in Romans is about, but we also pray that you'll help us to apply it to our lives, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The church in Rome was started by Jewish background converts who were present at Pentecost. It was just a couple of months after Jesus' resurrection. Acts 2 tells us that they consisted of both Jews and converts to Judaism. And in the early years, the church at Rome was mainly made up of Jewish background believers, but there were also a few Gentile background believers as well. But then something big happened to the church in AD 49. Emperor Claudius ordered all the Jews to leave Rome. And that's mentioned in passing in Acts 18 when Paul meets a couple from Corinth who had been expelled from Rome. So all the Jewish background believers had to leave the church in Rome. And while they were away, the very few Gentile background believers invited all their friends along and they got a whole lot of converts from the Gentile background people. Within a few years, Jews were allowed to return to Rome, and as the Jewish background believers returned, they found that they were now attending a majority Gentile background church, and the seeds for conflict were sown in the church. The church was divided into two. You had the majority Gentile believers on one side, and then there were the minority Jewish background believers on the other side. The church in Rome really was divided. Jewish background believers were boasting that their faith was superior. They were descended from Abraham. They had the Old Testament law as the bedrock of their faith. And they looked down on those Gentile background believers who lacked all of those important things. Anyway, word of this division in the church in Rome reached Paul in Corinth. And so Paul wrote this letter to the Romans to try and put this divided church back together. Now, he had to address this problem decisively because what happens in the capital city of the empire is going to spread to the churches throughout the empire. So Paul's got to bring together this very divided church in Rome and make it a model for all of the other churches throughout the empire. But how do you sort out the problem of a divided church like this? How can you get the Christian community at Rome working well? Now, each of us knows it can be very difficult to be part of a community, any kind of community, whether that's the local sporting club, your school, your job, um, anywhere. A community full of sinful individuals is difficult to live in. But today's passage gives us some good news because the community that every one of us joins when we become a Christian, has something different to every other community that you are in. Every single member of the Christian community has been saved by faith alone. None of us joined it because of our works or accomplishment, like maybe the local sporting club, um, maybe your job and things like that. No, every single member joined by faith to the Christian community, and that's the key to getting the community to work well. Paul saw that it was the key to settle the divisions in the church at Rome, and wherever Christians live out this community, it makes a huge difference. We'll find it leads to humility, not boasting, unity, not discrimination, 
It leads to obedience, not lawlessness. And those are the three points we'll be covering in today's sermon. Okay, the first feature of a Christian community is that there is no room for boasting. Instead, each member of the community must bring an an attitude of humility. And this has all gone very, very wrong at the church in Rome. The Jewish background believers think that they are superior. And at the core of the idea of why they think that is the fact that they think they're saved by their good works of obeying the law. That gave them just something to boast about when they turned up to church. And maybe they'd boast it by just dropping in the odd comment about how they'd grown up knowing the law and had a much better understanding of the Old Testament than anyone else. Or maybe they just brought along a smug attitude that showed everyone that they thought they were better than everyone else. But what Paul does here is he demolishes their attitude that underlies the boasting. He shows how they need to bring an attitude of humility when they come to church. Paul shows they don't obey the law, even though they, of anyone at all, should have known better. Have a look at the roasting he gives them in chapter 2 from verse 17. He says to them, now you, if you call yourself a Jew, if you rely on the law and boast in God, if you know his will and approve of what is superior because you're instructed in the law, because you have the, in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? You who preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that people should not commit adultery. Do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? As it is written, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. All of their boasting amounts to nothing. All of their boasting about a superior relationship with God in the end just shows their hypocrisy because their lives prove that they can't obey the law. In the end, chapter 3, verse 20 says, The law is only there to make us see our sin. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. Their intimate connection with the law gives them nothing to boast about. There's no way that they are saved by observing the law. So they have nothing to boast about. And that brings us to today's passage. Look at chapter 3, verse 27. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. Paul pulls them up. There's no room for boasting in a community where all are sinners. There's no room for boasting in a community where none is saved by their own works. Instead, all are saved by faith. Look again at verse 27. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. Because of what law? The law that requires works? No, because of the law that requires faith. So Paul flips around their understanding of the Old Testament law. When Jewish background believers picked up the first five books of the Old Testament, they thought the main point was about the laws you had to obey to be right with God. But Paul shoots that argument out of the water. He says it's not about the law that requires works. 
It's about the law that requires faith. They pick up the first five books of the Bible and they should realize the main point there is about faith. They had missed the point. They thought law-keeping and rituals were the main thing, but it's not the law-keeping you do that matters. It's the object of the law-keeping, which is faith in the promises of God who sets up the laws. Verse 28 says that it's only faith that saves us and nothing of our own works. Verse 28, for we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. This is the great leveller in the Christian community. There is no boasting for good works. There is no boasting that I have a better relationship with God than you because of my good works. Rather, Everyone in the Christian community is made equal by our failure to keep the law. The great leveller is that all of us are made right with God only by our faith in Jesus. And when I'm reading through this, I'm, I'm thinking of the parable Jesus told. Remember that one, the Pharisee and the tax collector? Because it's almost like it's being lived out here at the church in Rome. Remember Luke 18, to some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everybody else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like that tax collector. I twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. Now that is the voice of boasting. It captures the attitude of superiority that some in Jesus' day brought when they speak to God. He confidently stands up where everyone can see him. Then he lists out his achievements to God. And he finds someone who brings no achievements and compares himself to the tax collector. That's the voice of boasting. But Jesus does something really smart. He gives us another voice, a voice of humility as the tax collector speaks to God. Pick it up from verse 13. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. For all of his faults, the tax collector got one thing right. He knew he had nothing to bring to God. So he came with an attitude of Christian humility. And the outcome was a surprise for everyone. Look at verse 14. I tell you, says Jesus, that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. And he who humbles himself will be exalted. You know, when Jesus declares that this man went home justified, it must have been a shock for the bystanders, the people who looked down on others. They had been confident that their own righteousness would get them right with God. But only an attitude of humility gets someone to God. We are not saved by our works. We are saved only by our faith. And that means there is no room for boasting in the Christian community. Each of us must bring an attitude of humility. Well, 
what does boasting look like in the Christian community these days? Actually, it's much easier to see when you work with Sunday school kids. Um, as you're working with Sunday school kids, there can be an attitude of smugness from the kid who can answer all the questions right in class and come out on top of the class academically. Sometimes I see a look of boasting in the eyes of the kid who obeys all the rules as she looks down on the poor kid who just can't sit still for the whole lesson. And the end result is that that kid thinks that they're a better Christian. And, you know, that's pretty hard to counter, even when you're doing a lesson about humility in your Sunday school thing. But adults also boast too. They just do it in more subtle ways than kids. Watch for boasting about the length of time someone's been a Christian. Perhaps it's measuring others according to their knowledge of the Bible. Perhaps it's having lots and lots of close friends who are strong Christians. Perhaps it's boasting about which Christian university group you attend. Perhaps it's boasting about the regularity of your attendance, your serving, your generosity. None of those are bad things. But they become a problem when you boast to God that you're better than others who don't measure up on one of those areas. It can make for a really, really competitive church. It can make for a really, really judgmental church, which kind of undermines the fact that we're all just saved by our faith. Now, the attitude that underlies boasting is not just toxic for the Christian community. It can be toxic for outsiders as well. Non-Christians often have an idea that Christians are good people and that they are saved by God because they are good. If they come into a Christian community and see boasting happening, then they're going to get distracted from the message of salvation by faith alone. They're going to start thinking, oh, maybe I need to do something or rather to be saved. Any boasting in the Christian community can undermine the message of salvation by faith alone that we hold out to an unbelieving world. Worse still, some might strive to earn their salvation if they think that that's the way things are done in the Christian community. Watch out for where you find yourself boasting and repent when you see yourself doing it. But don't just leave it there. Take up the attitude of humility and see how it makes our community different. We bring the attitude of humility, like the tax collector who stood before God and prayed, God have mercy on me, a sinner. Boasting is never the right attitude to bring to God. When you hear yourself boasting, remind yourself that you were never able to save yourself. There's nothing you can do to impress God. We've got nothing to boast about. Only Jesus can save. And that's going to result in a better community where people don't spend all their time thinking that they're better or worse than others by worldly measures, but rather focus on the fact that each of us is a sinner saved by God. That will bring us humility as we approach others. Humility makes it easier for us to come alongside each other and support each other, knowing we face the struggles of being fellow sinners. 
and that can build a much, much stronger community. So that's the first way salvation by faith alone shapes the Christian community. There must be no room for boasting. Rather, we must bring an attitude of humility. Let's have a look at the second one. The second feature of a Christian community is that there's no room for discrimination. Instead, each must strive for unity based on our common experience of salvation by faith, not works. Discrimination is really the outcome of boasting. First, someone finds a reason why they're superior. Then someone starts boasting about that superiority. And then finally, the community is marked by discrimination against the group that is seen as inferior. And that's exactly what's happening in the church at Rome as Jewish background believers look down on the Gentile background believers as they're busy categorizing everyone into first-rate Christians and second-rate Christians. It led to a division of the church at Rome. And what's going on underneath all of this at Rome is the wrong mindset that the Jew-Gentile divide points to two different types of salvation. On one side, we've got those born into the Jewish community, taught the law from childhood. And more recently, they've seen Jesus as the fulfillment of all the Old Testament messianic promises. This was the tried and tested means of salvation that had worked for much, much longer than 1,500 years, perhaps nearly 2,000 years. On the other side, we have the Gentile background believers who grew up knowing nothing of the Old Testament. At some point, they heard the stories about Jesus and were converted to Christianity. This more recent means of salvation was viewed as inferior by the Jewish background believers. So the two paths to Christianity couldn't have been more different for the two groups in the Roman church. But Paul addresses this. Look at verse 29 where he says, or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles too? Yes, of Gentiles too, since there is only one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through that same faith. Since this one God, there is one means of salvation and this levels the playing field so that no discrimination is warranted. The point here is that as one God, There is one God who works the same way to save in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. God saves both Jewish and Gentile background believers through the same faith. Neither are saved by works, both are saved by faith. God is equally the God of his Old Testament people, the Jews, but he's equally the God of Gentiles. Each are put right in the same way by faith. That's the great leveller of the Christian community. You know what? For Paul, this wasn't just some intellectual argument he worked out. 
It was something he had lived in his life. As he looks back on his life, when he's writing another letter to the church in Philippi, he traces the attitude that led him to discriminate not only against Gentiles, but even against most Jews who didn't meet his rigorous standards. Have a look at Philippians chapter 3, beginning at verse 4, where he talks about his experience. He says, if someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh. I have more, circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee as for zeal, persecuting the church as for legalistic righteousness, faultless. But then his life turned around, an encounter with the risen Jesus on the Damascus Road completely changed things in his life. He learned once and for all that none of these works could get him right with God. And he describes the result from verse 7, but whatever were my gains, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. And in the final reversal, God even commissioned Paul, the Jew of Jews, to reach the Gentiles in Paul's life, there was no more room for discrimination after he had met Jesus. He was saved by faith in Jesus alone. He was not saved by his works. Now, we're all sinners saved into community without works of our own. So there's no room for discrimination. And that's going to make any Christian community a better place to be if we put it into practice because it was not being put into practice at the church in Rome. The church in Rome had lost track of this. There was a discrimination by the minority Jewish background believers against the majority Gentile background believers who didn't keep the law. And Paul is writing to them to remind them that salvation by faith provides their grounds for unity. There is no room for discrimination. Church I attended quite a few years ago had a lot of recent converts and kind of watched the dynamics of the church there because it was quite interesting. You'd had the long-termers who had grown up, Christian families, all the way through Sunday school, and you could see that there was often a temptation to look down or discriminate against the very recent converts who didn't have all the knowledge that comes from growing up in Sunday school. Sometimes they couldn't even answer the most basic questions in the Bible study. They couldn't find the book that you were looking at. They, they flipped to 1 John instead of John's Gospel, things like that. But to their credit the long-termers at that church understood that someone as a recent convert is just as much saved as someone who has grown up all their life in a Christian family. Without that, 
I could see that there was a tension, that discrimination could have broken out in that church. But they did the right thing. They stuck to the idea that we are all saved by our faith. Now, discrimination does happen in lots and lots of different churches. I think the church in Rome was probably unusual because you had a minority discriminating against the majority. Usually it's the other way around. Perhaps the majority group discriminates against a minority group from a different cultural background. Um, Quite often it might be people from a different socioeconomic background. But the fact that all Christians are saved by faith, not works means there is no room for discrimination. There is a path to unity for every church. So that's the second way. Salvation by faith, not work, shapes Christian community. There is no room for discrimination. And instead, our shared experience of salvation by faith alone is the grounds for unity in the church. Now, the third way that justification by faith not works makes Christian community better is that it doesn't result in lawlessness. Lawlessness can destroy a community as the strongest prevail. Lawlessness means survival of the fittest. It favours those who mistreat others. The Jewish background believers at Rome were worried that the idea of justification by faith could lead to lawlessness. For them, the Old Testament law was very important. They call it the Torah, and it's set out in the first five books of the Bible. Have a look at this quote that captures the importance of the Torah to God's Old Testament people. It says, Torah laid out a total way of life. The 613 commands represented God's ethical vision for navigating an ancient community towards the good life. God's desire for justice through welfare and charity. God's holy character through the ritual laws. And God's provision for sin through the priestly and sacrificial system. The religious calendar of Sabbaths, which is rest days, feasts and festivals recounted the shape of Israel's story, reminding them of who they were why they existed, and what God had done for them. In the minds of the Jewish background believers at Rome, if justification by faith alone gets rid of the law, then it will be a disaster for their community. Perhaps the fear that the kids would run wild if there were no school rules. What would stop someone doing whatever they liked if they knew God would forgive it anyway? But Paul will not allow them to go down that argument. He says justification by faith doesn't allow us to live however we like. Rather, the law continues to be important. Look at verse 31. He says, do we then nullify the law by this faith? Not at all. Rather, we uphold the law. So the law stays, but its position is shifted around. Instead of being the way to salvation, the law is now lived out as a response to salvation. Paul explains that a bit more clearly in Ephesians 2, where he says, For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith, and this not from yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiworks, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. 
So you see what happened there? Paul says we are saved by faith and not saved by works, but we are saved to do the good works that God prepared in advance for us to do. First saved, then good works as a response. Now, Paul's going to expand on that when we get up to chapter 6, so make sure you're here in a few weeks' time. But at this stage, the main thing you need to know is that although no one is saved by law-keeping, salvation by faith doesn't lead to the situation where people can live however they like. Some years back, I was running the... um, lunchtime Christian group at the local high school. That was before COVID. And I remember talking to one teenager who was trying to get his head around this idea of justification by faith alone. I was explaining that we're not saved by our works. You can see his brain sort of ticking over. And he says, oh, there's a bit of a problem with that though, isn't there? It's like if we got rid of the school rules, wouldn't All the students just run wild. For him, it was only the knowledge that you would be in trouble with the deputy principal that kept everyone in the school obeying the rules. But I told him that justification by faith doesn't work like that. Perhaps perhaps a better analogy for him to understand it is it's more like the least worthy student who was offered a scholarship into a school he would never have made it into. And now he wants to live up to the privilege he's been given. He's going to strive to follow the school rules as a response to that thing that he has been given. You can see the brain ticking around. He said, yeah, I think I get that now. All right? This has got implications for your life. If you're like me, now and then a thought can pop into your head that, Oh, God's just going to forgive me anyway if I give in to this temptation just one time. You know it's the wrong thing to do, but that's the risk that justification by faith can lead to lawlessness. And we have to push back by reminding ourselves that we respond in obedience to our salvation. But this is also important as well for how we talk to non-Christians. You've got to be really careful how you explain justification by faith to non-Christians. I remember sitting with a very young Christian who was running a Christianity Explain group. And he rightly said salvation by faith alone means God is holding on to you no matter what happens. But then he took it too far in his own life. He didn't strive for a life of obedience in response. He missed out this vital second step. And eventually he drifted away from the Christian community because he didn't rightly see that it's a whole-of-life thing in response to salvation. So that's the third way. Salvation by faith, not works, shapes the Christian community. It upholds the law. But works have their right place as a response to salvation rather than a means to salvation. When it's lived out, that is going to enhance any Christian community. Now, I've got two points for challenge as we implement this here in our Christian community at Grace Point. First, um, plug into the Christian community. Privatisation 
of faith means people elect to be Christians on their own rather than plug into community. And I think COVID has made that much worse over the last three and a half years or so. Recently I was talking to someone who says that he's a Christian but he doesn't need to be part of community. Well, each of us as a Christian is already saved into a community and we need to work that out in practical ways. More recently, I'm seeing quite a few people who've decided to come back to church after COVID and hang out with Christians again. COVID's been a really long stretch and it feels like we're reaching the end of that now. But coming to church is only a good first step. Come deeper into the community. Get to know some people. Perhaps sign up with a newcomers group or a Christianity Explained group that runs after service here. Each Christian is saved into community. Let's make it happen in a real way. Another thing. Second, let's think about how we do community. Christian community is not always easy. Sometimes it goes wrong, but when it does, let's go back to the core of justification by faith alone as we tackle the problems. Where there's boasting, let's seek humility. Where there's discrimination, let's find our unity in our shared experience of salvation by faith alone. Where we're tempted to lawlessness, let's replace it with obedience in response to the great salvation we have received. And that will make all the difference in our community. Let me pray for us as we finish up. Heavenly Father, thanks that you save us as individuals by faith and not works. Thanks that you save us into a community of Christians. Help us to find our place in this community. Keep us humble and help us find unity in our shared experience of salvation. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.